I felt that I'm not good enough. And I've, I've had that in probably my subconscious, even when I've thought, no, I am good enough. I can do this. You know, I, I, I got to being at one of the highest levels that you can get to at skiing. The only thing I could have done was go and compete and maybe become a world ranked skier. Now, I don't know whether I had that ability or not, because it wasn't on my radar. I didn't want to do it, but if I got the ability to be at the top of my game with that, there's no reason why I can't be at the top of my game with something else. Cause I know that it's in me, but subconsciously from a business point of view, there was so much stuff holding me back because it, because the business side of things was, is more geared towards the academic side of things. Welcome to beyond the fail, the podcast where we talk to leaders and entrepreneurs about their biggest business failures. We'll deep dive into how they overcame these setbacks, the lessons they learned from them, all to help you gain valuable insights. Failure is an essential part of the business journey, as well as being the key to success. So we're here to show you how to thrive from it. Today, we have the privilege of exploring the enriching journey of a seasonal entrepreneur with an impressive 25-year record across diverse industries. Andrew Batt, an entrepreneur with a knack for spotting opportunities from an early age, even advised his parents to start a property investment fund for him when he was only 11. From launching a thriving gardening business at the tender age of 18, employing 16 people at its height, to venturing into the world of classic car transportation, even carrying a car worth 15 million pounds, Andrew's entrepreneurial spirit knows no bounds. His ability to identify and capitalize on opportunities is a testament to his keen business acumen. But Andrew's story doesn't end there. He has co-authored 13 books, is a seasoned property investor, and is a dedicated mentor and coach where he channels his passion into teaching and supporting others to unlock their full potential. Today, we explore the impacts of his dyslexia on his self-worth and the bullying experiences that shaped his outlook on life. This episode unfolds the challenges Andrew faced in not being able to scale his businesses his entrepreneurial mindset born out of necessity and the limiting beliefs rooted in his school experiences. We'll delve into the importance of networking, the dangers of his reckless decision-making and the transformative power of setbacks. So get ready for a captivating conversation that underscores the power of resilience, networking and purpose in the unpredictable world of entrepreneurship. This is Beyond the Fail with Andrew Batt. Andrew, thanks so much for being here today. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm great. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Really, really appreciate being here. Um, great. I know you've got lots to share with us, so I'm just going to go straight in. So I know you've always kind of been an entrepreneur. Where did that kind of start for you? Um, it actually started before I was even born because my parents were entrepreneurs and um, my grandparents on one side of my family were entrepreneurs as well so I kind of uh, I I grew up into it it's all I've ever really known I, ha I have had corporate roles I've, I've worked in corporate had jobs for other people but it was kind of ingrained in my DNA pre-written and uh, I embrace it I embraced it anyway I love being my own boss what did that kind of influence look like at an early age then from your family um, well, my father got left a uh, bankrupt family business 
um, just prior to when I was born. Um, and he had two options. He could either carry on in the Merchant Navy and he was actually en route to being fast-tracked to being the youngest admiral of the BP fleet ever. And because of his upbringing, he wanted to bring more stability to our family. So the minute I came along, I obviously messed up all his plans. Uh, thankfully, he hasn't held that against me for my life. But um, but at a, at a similar time, he was um, he got left this bankrupt company that my great-grandmother and grand, great-grandfather ran. And he had the option of going, right, do I carry on with my naval career but not be around for my kids? Or kids slash I've got a little brother as well or younger brother. Um, or do I refloat this bankrupt business and actually make a go of that and go from there? So he, he took, my dad actually wasn't an entrepreneur, but he turned into one. So he took that leap and he took it on. So he worked right from in the factory. It was a, a an engineering kind of business um, providing rubber extrusions. So for like round the car doors, um, round hatches on aircraft, all that kind of stuff. So, um, and he worked right in the warehouse through the sales in accounts. He worked in all the different departments, even though he was the owner of the company until the managing director said, right, you need to be, you need to be the managing director. It's your company, your business, you know how everything works. So he carried on. So for my brother and I, this obviously this was still continuing on as we grew up as kids. So we were seeing a lot of this unfolding, but we just assumed that was his job because you do when you're a little kid, right? You know, mm. running around, eating mud and, and grazing yourself and breaking bones. You're oblivious to everything else. So, yeah, we kind of saw that side of it with him. And my mum used to help a little bit in that business. But then my mum also was a um, designer dressmaker and she ran her own business. So, uh, and the business was called Only One because she would make bespoke one piece items for ladies that, that were going to events. Because I, I know, I know for us guys, we get it easy wearing suits and dinner jackets, but for the ladies, there's nothing worse than walking into a, into a ball or a big dinner event and seeing someone else wearing exactly the same dress. So my mum actually built up quite a successful designer dressmaker company that she ran on her own. Um, and she did various other stuff as well. She was, uh, um, she did a upholstery and interior design as well. Um, so, so yeah, we kind of, we were just surrounded by it all the time. And then in the hol school holidays, we'd go down to the West country to stay with our grandparents for, you know, four or five weeks at a time. And they were entrepreneurs. So we were, we were just taken from one entrepreneurial circle and, you know, placed in another. So we, we couldn't really get away from it. We we're just surrounded by it all the time. I saw my dad getting into some sticky situations. You know, in 1987, um, we had a hurricane hit the southeast and it was real bad. The village that we lived in, um, it cut us off from the rest of the world for a week, an entire week. And bear in mind, I'm going back pre-internet, pre-mobile phone. Yeah. You know, all the telephones had a wire attached to the wall. If you went too far, the phone pinged out of your hand or you were clean off your feet because, you know, it was attached. So my dad had a chainsaw and one of our other mates' dads had a chainsaw. I was 11 years old. I learned how to use a chainsaw that week. And I saw my dad and this other dad problem solve and we basically chainsawed through all the trees over a week. And we had the whole village were getting milk delivered and bread delivered to the bottom of the village. 
and they were handing it for all these broken and fallen down trees. And so I was surrounded by this type of problem solving scenario. And determination as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we were taught, you know, and again, I was still, we were still kind of on those tail end generations of having a stiff upper lip. You know, if you've hurt yourself, suck it up, take a breath in and, and man up and get on with it. Now I'm not advocating that that's the right, right thing to do. Um, but that's just, that's all we, you know, you only know what you're taught or what you go out and learn. Either way, however your education comes to you, that's all you know at the time. And what you don't know, you don't know because you haven't got there yet. Has that ever had a, a negative impact on, on you? You know, essentially that tendency in, I suppose, in, in that generation, as you say, to bottle up things. Is that something that you've kind of taken on board as well and, and have that tendency to do that and not maybe let on when you're struggling or let on your feelings? Yeah, big time. And that was also the same. That 13 years old for me was quite a pivotal point in my life. Hitting puberty, I mean, that's never great, is it, when you're the squeaky kid? Uh, I was six foot two at 13. Now, the bonus with that is that I could go and buy cigarettes for the older kids. And guess what? I was making money out of that. Um, but I also got diagnosed with dyslexia. They just brought in literally that year, they brought in the dyslexic test in in some schools and they were kind of um well, i can't remember what it's called now they, they they were doing it as a pilot like a test pilot to see whether it actually would work so i sat down and i had to answer this like um i had 50 pages of multiple guess i call it there's multiple choice i think is the correct term um so i went through that answered all these questions and then that basically spat out you know whether i was or wasn't dyslexic and if i was dyslexic what kind of of level that was and it was actually my English teacher that picked it up. Um, so I was diagnosed with that. But again, it was still very much, um, I mean, I'm going back over 30 years now. So you just didn't talk about it. You know, women didn't talk about periods. You know, they do that. And then, you know, it was that kind of thing that certain taboo subjects, if if you've got a disability, we don't talk about it. If You know, we don't talk about lady stuff. We don't talk about dyslexia. I mean, most people didn't. ADHD hadn't even been, wasn't even a thing back then. Um, How did that make you feel then? Did that make you feel that there was something, you know, wrong with you? And yeah, a hundred percent, hundred percent. Because um, I literally there were two two teachers out of my entire school. In the school, I think there was uh, there was about five or six hundred students at the time. So there's probably the teacher facility was probably faculty was probably like twenty five thirty teachers in in the school. Two of them knew that I had dyslexia, and they were sworn to secrecy not to tell it. Oh, they else. kept it secret. Yeah, yeah. And what the trouble is, is that the the other teachers didn't know. So they effectively had that, you know, that like that hat, that pointy hat with the D on the front. And they used to call it a dunce hat, right? That's You'd be made to wear that if you were a dunce or, or a disruptive or um, disobedient or a whole bunch of other words beginning with D, but not a single one of them was dyslexic. So they weren't pushing me hard enough in the right way because they didn't understand what was wrong with me. So I was I was sat there going, well, I, I kind of get, when you talk to me, I understand it. If you show me something, I learn it. If you ask me to read a book and say, this is what you need to do, I'm out. 
Although having said that, I've got some books behind me. So I've, I've learned to do that now that I'm older, but back then I couldn't. Um, so it became quite oppressive for me to be in that situation, especially as I'm quite a free spirited person. And my parents were really good with me and my brothers, uh, sorry, my younger brother. And we were given, we were given choices at home. So we were told if you want to be treated like an adult, then you behave like an adult. And if you wanted to be treated like a child, behave like a child. That's basically the house rules. So me and my brother were like, well, you know, we were being children and getting in trouble all the time. And then we're like, okay, well, let's try and be adult. So we tried to be adult and it's like, oh, it's cool. We get to stay up a bit later and we get to be around when my parents' friends come around. And, and actually we were a lot more adult at a younger age because of that. So we got to do cooler stuff and we're like, yeah, okay, fair enough. But then we went back to school and I was a disruptive child. The word disruptive, in fact, a, a mutual friend of ours, Mr. Rob Moore, is the disruptive entrepreneur. That's the first time in my life that that word actually got flipped around to go, this is actually a good thing. That's the first time that I realized it was a good word. Up until then, until my early 40s, either the word disruption was a, a negative, had negative connotations because of that impact at that age. Was that kind of a a lonely time for you then? Did that, you know, negatively impact on your your performance in school? Oh, yeah, hugely. Yeah. It, in fact, in, academically, yes. Socially, no. Everyone knew me. I was great at diffusing situations between other, other guys because um, I was at an all-boys school from 13 to 18. So you can imagine some of the tensions that used to kick off there. And I'd be the guy that jumped in and, and split it up. And not because I was bigger than them. There were plenty of other boys that, you know, I'm sure you had it where you're at school and you go in school one day and then you get in the next day and one of your mates has literally gone through the entire puberty stages overnight. And you're like, hang on, how, where did you start growing a beard and deep voice and all the rest of it? Literally over 24 hours. So um, so I wasn't necessarily the, the biggest guy there. Um but everyone, everyone got on with me. I wasn't lumped into a specific, like all the sporty guys or all the academics or just everyone knew me. I was one of those all round people. Um, so it, it was that side of things was great, but the academics was what I was really struggling with. And part of the problem with my type of dyslexia is that when I do something, I want to do it properly. And when I can't do something properly, it really frustrates me. Um, but it, it, it's, I, I've had this conversation with my other half, Catty, um, and she's the first partner that I've ever been with that knew that I was dyslexic because I lit Melly. I really did keep it super secret. Oh uh, yeah. My mum, my dad, and my little brother, those are the only three people in the world that, that after I'd left school and my two teachers, so five people in the world knew about my dyslexia. No one else. There were you, were you ashamed of it? Yeah. Oh, uh, usually. Because I, I felt that because of that, I had an un, I, I, I was, I didn't, I couldn't have an edge over anyone else. I couldn't have an advantage. I, I couldn't even be average. But they were all things that I was saying to myself in my own head. And by the, by the very default of that, it, my, my academic side suffered um, hugely. I mean, I've got, three C's, two D's and three E's. Uh, sorry, five C's, three D's and two E's. 
at GCSE and two E's at A level. And I have actually got an H and D as well. Um, but that's just the academic mm. system and how they school. But I didn't fit into that. It's like trying to put a square peg into a round hole. Mm. So what did um what did your post school life look like and when did you sort of start your first business? Um so post school was awesome. I was unshackled, chains free. And I was in the world to create as much mayhem and, and fun as I could. Um, so it was, um, well, the first bit was a little bit of a struggle, actually. That's that's not entirely true. The first bit, literally, as, finished, as soon as I finished my A-levels, I was like, right, I've got to get a job because I want to earn money because I want to go skiing. Because I loved skiing and I wanted to go out and do a ski season. So I was like, I need to get as much money in as I can before I go. And then it gives me more options when I'm at, I'm I'm out there and I don't have to have a job all the time. I could maybe get a part-time job doing stuff a couple of days a week and then I can be skiing the rest of it and I can basically be on a massive extended holiday. That was my game plan. So I sent out my CV to 150 places. Now, again, bear in mind, pre-internet still back then um, and all the rest of it. We did have faxes uh, where paper actually travelled mis- mysteriously through wires. Um, but I sent it out to 50, uh, 150 places. I got one interview to wash dishes in a pub and I went to the interview and the guy said to me, um, really like you, you know, it's great. I, I, I would love to hire you. And I was like, here we go. Right. What is it? Ed? And he said, but you don't have enough experience. And I said to him, I'm not being funny, but me and my brother got taught how to cook when we were 13 years old and we helped wash up at home. So we do loads of the dishes at home. Well, then my mum probably would, if she was on the call, she'd probably say we didn't do it enough. But, um, but I said to him, I said, okay. I said, so I said, I think I'm going to get this a lot because I'm 18. How am I supposed to get experience if no one gives me a chance? And he turned around to me and he said, young man, I cannot answer that question. And it's a very good question, but I wish you all the best of luck. And I walked out of there and I was like, right, well, this... I literally thought I'm not sending my CV out anymore because I'm just wasting my time. I no one's going to help me. Shock horror! Because remember, by this stage, I ingrained in my head is that I'm the, the dyslexic guy, and no one's going to help out anyway. I got. I just got to sort this out myself. What the hell can I do? So I got back and I looked in the Friday hours, and I'm like, right, what's what are people? What do people need? What are they advertising for? So you know, like you'd get you'd get adverts of like cleaner wanted mm. two days a week or whatever. And I've seen loads of people that were like gardener wanted, gardener wanted, gardener wanted. And I'm like, there's like 20 adverts saying gardener wanted. And there's three adverts that are guys in the lake area that are all allegedly tree surgeons. And I'm I like, forgot about those ads because they're essentially like a precursor to like, for example, um, like checker trade. Essentially, you yeah. put a job on, right? Yeah. Yeah. I forgot about those. Yeah. So I was sat there and I'm like... It's almost like they were almost opposite pages. I mean, I was like looking at one page going, there's 20 people that need this stuff and there's three blokes here. Well, those adverts shouldn't even be there saying I'm looking for a gardener because all you've got to do is open it up and go garden services, pick up the phone. Hello, can you come cut my grass and cut my hedge? The trouble is, is that everyone at that time was a inverted commas tree surgeon. So they were charging like £15 an hour. But no one's going to pay anyone £15 an hour to cut their lawn or to maybe cut, trim some hedges. So I was like, I can start seeing a gap here. So I started phoning the people up. 
And I said, oh, I saw your advert. Um, would you like me to come around and give you a free quote? So they, they were like, well, in fact, no, before that, that evening, my dad came home. And again, we were lucky because my parents had been quite successful. We had a big garden. So we had an acre garden. My dad had a ride-on lawnmower, a push mower, and we had huge, like, 18-foot-high hedges. So me and my brother used to help out at home and cut the hedges. So I was like, right, my dad's got all the equipment. I know how to use it all because we do all the stuff here. I'm going to sit my dad down tonight. That's such a unique uh, position to be in. Yeah. So I sat down with my dad. I said, Dad, I've gone to this interview. He went, oh, I had to go. Uh, basically, by that stage, I was 18, so I could have a sweary conversation with my dad. So it was like effing and blind and going, you know, really frustrated. He says, well, what's your plan then? So, because they've always encouraged us not to have our hand held by them because, you know, what happens if they're not here and we don't know what the hell to do with ourselves. So they've always been very supportive, but also pushed us at the same time. So I said to him, look, dad, I've got this proposition for you. Hear me out. And I know I, I didn't realize then, but that was my first ever pitch to anyone. I think now I'm going to set up a gardening business, but I don't want to, I haven't got any money to go and buy all the equipment. So can I use yours? But before you say no, or wait a minute, uh, I want to also say that if I break anything, I will replace it like for like. And also what I'll do is that twice a year, I'll service all the equipment or more if it needs it. So now you don't have to pay that. So, I, and I knew with my dad, it would be like, if, he, if I'm saving him a few quid, he'll be happy with that. Hmm. So I, that was my little edge in the pitch. So I said, what do you reckon? And he went, I reckon you should go for it. I reckon that's a really good idea and I wish you the best of luck and I'll support you as much as I can, however I can. So I was like, wicked, cool. I've got 50 quid left in my bank account. It's 11 pounds a week for Friday ad advertising. I'm going to put an advert in for the month, pay that month and see how I get on. My ads, I looked at all the other ads and I didn't put my prices on. I just said free quotes because no one else said that. Would you like your grass cut and your hedges cut? Please give me a call. And then I sat and I stared at the phone for a day. And no one rang. And then my dad's at your home phone. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so old school, right? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah, again, oh, by that time they weren't wired. They only had one wire into the wall, and we could actually walk around with an aerial. So it's quite cool. Um, but there was no, there were no mobile phones still then, unless you were super like a youngie or you know super 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 uh, wealthy. So. Um, yeah, I sat there for the day waiting. My dad came back. I was like, this isn't great. My dad's going to come home and said, how have you got on? And I'm going to say, I've had nothing. So he came in. He said, how have you got on? And I said, nothing. And he went, it's only day one. Let it go. You've done, you're doing what he's trying to do. He said, don't worry about it. He said, by the way, can you cut the grass tomorrow? I said, yeah. Can, you, can, can I charge you 10 pounds? Anyway, no. no. But he'll keep you busy. I was like, all right, fair enough. So he went out there, cut the grass the next day. And then I got a phone call at four o'clock in the afternoon. Hi, I've seen your advert. And I'm and I'm literally I did that thing that you see on the films where they cover the phone. I'm like, yeah. And then I'm like, yep, how can I help? Um, so I went down and that that was my first quote that I did. I got the job. Um and basically within two weeks I was booked for six months of the summer. Seven days a week. Because I said to people, I work seven days a week. I don't have a, a set day and I'll work around you. So if you don't want me there on a Sunday because you're playing croquet or having a garden party no problem i'll come in on the saturday so it's it almost still smells of fresh cut, fresh cut grass um so yeah i was but seven days a week and i ended up one of my other mates um was he was a bit older and he he was in between uni um on the summer holidays 
And he said, oh, mate, have you got any work? And I said, funny you should say that. Yes. <laughs> so I employed my first employee, although we went into partnership together because um, I thought this is great because he can share the costs with me. So um, so that's what, what we did there. So that was, that was the birth of the first company, um, which helped me get out to France. I didn't really need to do cutting grass and hedges over the winter because you don't need to. And I thought, I've got it, I've got it made. Perfect for you. Yeah, yeah. That perfect lifestyle business. It was. So the next, when I got back from the, the first winter ski season, I literally picked up the phone and out of my black book said, hi guys, I did say I'll be back uh, mid-April. Uh, I'm back here. We're, we're looking at hedges first. And, you know, depending on how, how soon the weather changes, we'll be getting into grass. Would you like me to come back? And they're like, yeah. And guess what? Within two weeks, I was booked up for, uh, for the whole of the summer. But not only that, my best mate at the time, his dad was a very big property developer in the southeast, and he was buying lots of properties at the same time. And they all need turfing. And I was like, yeah, we can do turfing. And then my best mate said, well, me and my brother are home from uni. Can we work with you? I was like, yeah. If we can score the contract with your dad, you can work for me. You've got a job. I ended up employing 16 of our mates and running, and I was running three sites at a time. And I wasn't actually cutting grass, laying turf or anything. I was literally running from site to site each day to make sure everyone had got what they needed and were doing what they were supposed to. And how quickly was that from, was that in the second year? Yeah, that was second year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then third year. I'd actually got the opportunity to stay out and do a winter, uh, a summer season in the Alps and do a load of building work. And, uh, and the building was where I wanted to be because I'd always wanted to be a property investor. In fact, I wanted to be a property investor from the age of 11 because I saw other parents, friends who were property developers that had a very good lifestyle. And that was from pro being property developers. And my mum my and dad took us to our school at 11 to, to go and have a look at it. And they said, my dad said, what do you think of the school? And I said, well, I know that you've got to pay to send us here. So could you send me to a state school where you don't have to pay, but use the money that you would pay for my education here into a bank account that I can then at 18 use to buy property? And my dad's not into property like that. My mum is. She's the one that pushed us into it. But my dad wasn't. And the way that, that, that everything was set up at the time, it, it wasn't possible to do that. But my mum remembers that whole conversation, like to where we were stood in the school. And that's she... amazing, um, I suppose, an investment mindset to have at 11. Mm. Well, the thing is, is that I saw how my, my parents were living. So what I didn't mention earlier on is that when my little brother came along, my mum would take me and my brother to the local play, play area for where there were slides and swings and all that kind of stuff. And we'd arrive there and my brother would eat. He, he, he was one of those kids that was like bucking in, in the pram and trying to get out. And, and it's like, just calm down so we can unplug you and then you can go. And he was off. He'd sprint right into the play area. And my mum said, I'd always stand there and wait. And she said she never said anything initially. And she just looked down at me and she was actually watching me. And she was watching me watch my brother with all the kids because I had a built-in protector, older protector brother mode, which no one had taught me about. It's just ingrained. And and she one day, she watched this over a few weeks, and she she then said to me, why, why aren't you running in with Jonathan? 
And I said, because I want to make sure that he's okay. And she goes, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, I want to make sure that, because by this, by the age of three, I'd already been bullied at school and I didn't want that to happen to my brother. And because I was bigger than my brother, obviously at that age, you know, I, I, I was one of the bigger kids in those circles. So I was like, I want to make sure that he doesn't have to have to go through the hell that I have. So obviously I didn't use those exact words at that age, but I said, I just don't want him to get hurt like I was. And my mum was like, and I, she said she was starting to well up hearing me talk like that, especially as you know, one of your kids is saying that to you, of course you are. But she also was welling up with um, happiness that I would, she knew that I was protecting my brother. Mm. Um, so, and what I, what I've realized over the years is that I'm actually very good at sitting on the sidelines and assessing what's going on in front. And then I can just pick stuff apart and, mm-hmm. and kind of, it's a bit like moving chess pieces around the chessboard. And I'm no, by no means a master chess player, but if you imagine people in industry, and obviously we both work in the property industry, so I can see certain people that I know that will work very well together, but they haven't necessarily thought about that. So I've I've set up some of my property business teams around that or I've kind of brought it to the table and gone, guys, have you thought about this, 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 and this person all working together because we've got different skill sets? And that's how things have, have kind of helped evolve. So again, it was that skill set that I had. And mm. and it came from a protect, protecting way as a kid. And now it's just morphed into other stuff as I've, as mm. I've got older. And you could definitely see that the skill that you mentioned about sitting on the sidelines and can uh, being considered you know in all the things that you've mentioned all the examples you've mentioned that's you know it's obviously definitely a, a, a talent that you have of absorbing information and examples by watching others and then um thinking strategically about what you can do so um, yeah that's that's it's definitely a, a skill so I'm just intrigued. What happened to the gardening business? Did it? Did it? You know? Did it end in in, in a multinational company? Or I wish. Yeah, I wish it was. I wish I was like a one gardeners, multi million pound business. No, what happened was I did that uh, ski season, and again I was sat on the fence um, after the third winter. Going, I've got mates that are ten years older than me, so they were like early thirties, like thirty, thirty one. And they weren't really going anywhere. No, I don't mean it in a nasty way. I just thought, well, that's, you know, they're kind of wedged into this life now. And I thought the other thing is that I I was also starting to see some of them getting classic ski injuries. Um, And I was thinking, well, the minute I get a ski injury, I'm going to start struggling. The other thing at that time was that one of my mates actually got paralyzed from a snowboarding accident. Um, because what I haven't shared yet is that I'm a retired extreme skier. Um, and I used to basically risk my life every day, um, and take my life into my own hands in, in the most literal possible way you can. Um, because we were jumping off huge cliffs, like the, the, the height of houses, um, just for fun. And I've been buried in an avalanche up to my waist. I outskied one avalanche that if I hadn't outskied it, I wouldn't be here today. Um, so we were really dicing with death all the Why time. Why do you want to do that? 
for the adrenaline. I was a, I was a huge, huge adrenaline. Two things actually. One, I was a huge adrenaline junkie. Um, and two, to prove it, it was proving that I'm unstoppable. Do you think that was linked to the dyslexia? Hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. Because I, I, I'd been told that I'd basically been told I was no good and I was never going to amount to anything. And I'm not saying that in a in a um, in a theoretical way. I actually sat down at 16 with one of my teachers, and I had my mum and my dad on, sat on either side of me, and it was one of those kind of parent-teacher meetings. And the teacher in front of me was my ancient history GCSE teacher, and he turned round and I quote said, "Mr. and Mrs. Bat, I wouldn't send your son here for his A levels. You'll be wasting your money." because he doesn't have the intelligence to get any A-levels. Yeah. And I actually clenched my fist whilst I was sat there, and I was literally, you can imagine 16-year-olds having all these kind of struggles internally and not being able to share them. I was literally going to lean over and punch him in the face. And I'm not a violent person, but it ju I, I just, it was really weird. It was the first time in my life I'd ever really had that just complete switch. And um, my mum... I remember my mum, she just put her hand very calmly out of the top of my fist. Mm. And I was like, she's doing that for a reason. I'm just going to sit here. And I looked at her and she just she just kind of politely shook her head at me. And I was like, all right, okay. They've always advised me very well. I'll take the advice. What would you say has been the most significant failure of your career or business career? It's actually linked to my dyslexia because I hid it for 30 years. Um, I only know that now, but I didn't know that then. So part of my failing was that I didn't know how to scale businesses um, because my dad's, he kind of naturally scaled his because it was, he was basically a middleman. So, and he was in manufacturing. So he would import everything. He'd put a markup on it and he'd sell it. But what he, where he'd been quite clever was that he'd got the rights and he owned the tooling for the stuff that he was selling. So he basically had a monopoly, right. more or less. So he was able to scale by default. No, I, and I don't get me wrong, I'm not kind of belittling his efforts because he was flipping amazing. You know, he had 50 staff at the peak of it and, you know, doing incredibly well and, and rode through three recessions as well. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, the, 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 my dad, is, I've got an awful lot of respect for my dad um from a business point of view as well as obviously personally um but my failing was that i couldn't scale the business you know the gardening i didn't want to go back to i'd scaled it up but again it's a young man's game um so i'd worked in uh i'd worked on race cars after i finished uni because another passion of mine is is cars and i actually built my own car at 21 as well um so that was kind of ingrained in me. My dad used to race cars as well. So, but again, I saw another one of these gaps and I'm like, people need their cars transporting around the place. So I'm going to set up a transport company. Now the fail kicks in is that the more that I grew it, the less I could scale it because I, what I'd actually done and I didn't realize was I'd provided so much service from me personally to my clients that my clients only wanted to deal with me. So they didn't want to see another driver coming up. But not only that, 
I was having to do all the hours under the sun that I could legally do because I had to run a tachograph like a lorry driver and there was only so much I could work per week. So I couldn't actually afford to pay another driver. I couldn't afford to have a second setup and a rig to drive and do more things. So I kind of just created this job for myself, albeit a very cool one. But it was a huge, it became a double fail when um, where I drove a million miles in 10 years, I shrunk my hip flexors. And what that meant was it was giving me chronic back pain. And I got told at 30, uh, 38, 39 years old, if you do another million miles in another 10 years, you will be in a wheelchair for the rest of your life. And for me, that was like, no. Now, looking back on it, I failed because I didn't understand the business that I was running enough whilst I was running it. If I had you, what do you mean by that? Well, because I thought, well, I, you know, I can sit down and drive. You know, most people will get in a car at an hour, hour and a half. They get a man droopy, eye, tired eye. They're feeling a bit lethargic and they're really struggling. It takes me about two and a half to three hours just to get into the groove because I'm used to long distance driving. So, um, but the trouble is when you sit down and you don't move for hours on end, your body starts to get used to that and change so it's a bit like um someone using like an sds drill on a building site you you and i know nowadays that if you're you know there there are rules and regulations on how long you can use heavy machinery because of the vibrations and because of the damage that that does to you on a, over a long period of time so but again you speak to a builder that's 60 70 80 years old they're like well that wasn't like that and i bet we just manned up and got on with it but it caused, they're the guys that are all hunched over and got all these problems and arthritis and all the rest of it. So the fail there was the one, I couldn't scale it up. Two, that entire business relied 100% on me with the clients. And three, I had to close it down overnight. So Because of the wheelchair. Because of the, because I don't want to be in a wheelchair at 50 years old. Not if I, not out of choice. And that's the thing, you know, I might still be in a wheelchair at 50 because of something else, but at least it's not because of the choice that I've carried on to continue to make just to make a bit of money. So you, how, so you ran that for 10 years, did you say? I ran it. Yeah. The business still exists, but I don't run it as a transport business anymore. I've switched it up and, and do more stuff in kind of alternative finance around that. So although I had a fail initially, it's kind of coming full circle to, to not being such a fail. But there's been a very big gap of, of almost another 10 years to actually rewrite that. So what did that look like at the time in terms of how, you know, you said you had a lot of clients. How how many jobs were you doing across the year? Did you have any staff? What, what did it look like? So I didn't have staff, but I had friends of mine that would come along and do the long distance driving with me and family as well. So because of the um, tachograph, you could have two drivers so you could switch drivers so a bit like driving with your mate somewhere for five hours you do two and a half hours you switch over they drive two and a half hours for the non-car people which i include myself what is a tachograph uh right so a tachograph is a machine that is fitted into lorries and goods vehicles that actually monitors how long you've been driving and what speeds you've been driving at and if you go over the hours that you should be driving or over the speeds, if a police officer stops you, they can request to see your uh, tachograph and you can take it out. They can read that tachograph and assess whether you've been speeding, whether you've been driving too long, 
right. and whether you're in breach of, of driving regulations. So, yeah, again, I, I sometimes I forget. For me, it was just automatic. It's a bit like tying shoelaces. It's great if you know how to do it. Um, so, yeah, there were lots of rules and regulations. Um, also, the other one is that it was for insurance purposes because I was mm. I was moving around very, very famous racing cars um, that are worth multiple millions of pounds. Right. Um, so, so you were driving the actual car? So the cars were going into a covered trailer. So for, for the one of the best description, the covered trailer looked like a caravan without windows. So it was on the, right, okay. And it was only, did you only transport one car at a time? Yeah, so it was one car at a time. Yeah, I basically had a four-wheel drive, this um, this transporter behind, and the car would drive into the transport. Uh, it all got locked up and closed down. And the other reason for doing that was from a security point of view. So there was one particular car that I used to transport that, and, and I'm, like I said, I'm going back kind of 10, 15 years here. Um, that was valued at 15 million at the time because it was the last surviving car of that particular mate. So not only did I want to keep that covert, so did my client. Um, and it, but it's a hell of it's a hell of a responsibility and a hell of a risk moving those kind of vehicles around. Why didn't you just employ a driver? Because I couldn't afford it. I could the I'd got my hourly rates so down to be competitive to get the work that I'd effectively made a rod for my own back. Again, another fail. Instead of realizing I, I didn't realise my worth, and that also is where my dyslexia came in. Because I thought, well, you know, everyone else is charging twenty uh, like thirty to forty pounds an hour. No one's gonna to want to pay forty pounds an hour. They're used to paying 30 so you know i didn't realize that actually i was so niche it's a bit it's a bit like being like a a coach for ceos right and you're a ceo yourself yeah but you go well actually i should probably just teach middle management to be to be you know i could coach them it's like no you could coach a ceo level because you are one and you're running at these levels and coaching other ceos so and also your your cost should reflect that you know, we've got a mutual friend that does exactly that. Mm. And to, to someone that's not a CEO and not at that level, what she charges is is a lot of money. But to someone that is at that level and is on, you know, well north of six-figure salaries, actually what she can teach them will get them to seven-figure salaries. Mm. So it's actually a very small investment. So it's all relative to what you know. So what did that then... <laughs> Because obviously you did that for 10 years. So it must have been, I suppose, lucrative enough to carry on for, for that period of time. So was the... The sort of, I suppose, nailing the coffin, the physical side and you giving that, getting that diagnosis, would you have carried it on if you hadn't got that diagnosis? Yeah, I would have been blissfully ignorant. I wouldn't have realised. I mean, obviously, the condition got worse and worse over a period of time. So it got to the point where I was in a lot of pain. And I thought, this can't be right. I've got to see someone about this. There's only so much of that stiff upper lip upbringing that I had that I can take, even for me. Um, and I've got a reasonably high pain threshold. I've broken my left collarbone five times over my life. Yeah. Uh, and I've got a crushed vertebrae in my neck. So I've, I'm not a stranger to pain. Um, but but that it, it was just constant and and it just it was horrific, you know. Um, 
I can't describe it. I was actually talking to someone on a phone call earlier this afternoon and she, she's gone through some similar stuff with her pain. And, and we were saying that when, when you suffer physical pain, but, but other people can't see it, it's very hard to explain it. And it's also very hard for them to understand it as well. Um, so yeah, I, he just, I, I just thought I don't want to be in a wheelchair in 10 years time. I haven't 10 years and isn't enough time for me to do the stuff that I want to do in my life that I haven't done yet. So I had to make that decision. And within three months I'd, I'd sold all my rig off. I, I, I'd got out of it. Um, and funnily enough, I'd gone back to gardening for a mate of mine for a couple of years. And then I went to another friend and I actually ended up working, installing car park equipment all over the UK. And what that actually led on to was us working on care construction sites. Um, and I didn't realize it at the time, but that was going to serve me better into where I am today, um, in the property world. So again, a, 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 a sequence of fails has led me to the, the, the kind of more upward slowly of getting those successes. And you mentioned that there's a theme and a pattern around not being able to scale businesses. Where else has that reared its head and what impact um, has, has that kind of had on you? I think um, probably, well, a load of the other businesses because I ran the gardening business as well. And again, I just... I'd kind of stalled with it and I, I think I'd lost interest with it and I didn't understand how to scale it. The other thing that I had was the property investing because I actually started property investing in 1999 in my early 20s. And we were literally buying a property, refurbing it, refinancing it, leaving a bit of money in, not too much, um, and then going on to the next one because we had a bit of bit of money at the time. I did that with my mum, my brother, um, and myself. And that worked until about 2004, by which stage property property prices were going up um, and we'd run out of money and we couldn't recycle enough out to then do the next one. So we're like, oh, we'll have to sit here and wait. So, and I wasn't earning enough money in fast enough to build up those big, big piles. Um, and also... A lot of my 20s, I was making everything up as I went along. So I was actually at a networking event earlier this week and I was explaining this to someone. And, and they said, well, how did you used to make, you know, the decisions from the risk point of view? And I said, it's, it will probably make you laugh and it makes me chuckle now. But looking back on it, I think you, you know, that was not a smart move. But I used to get to the point where any decision I made, you get to that point just before you make a decision where you've got a 50-50. You've narrowed all the risks and, and everything down and you go, well, if I go that way, that could happen. If I go that way, that could happen. But I've now got to make a decision. Do I do it or do I don't do it? That's what it boils down to, right? In everything that we do, do I, do I go out with this girl or do I not? Do I finish this relationship or not? Do I buy this house or do I not? And everything, it all boils down to yes or no, that's an, that's the end of it. When it comes to making a decision, I had a lucky 50 feet, 50p piece, 50 pence piece that I used to carry in my pocket all the time. And I used to flick it. No way. Yeah. Like I was flipping Harvey Two-Face off Batman. Now I'm into Batman, you know that, because my surname's Bat and it's my, my nickname. But 
I was making those decisions. And you know what? Some of those decisions I did really well out of, but other decisions, they were horrendous. Is that, is, is that, is that another example of you living on the edge and living, uh, a sort of being fueled by adrenaline because yeah, that is a, you know, that's kind of a, <laughs> a crazy way to make decisions, especially in a business uh, sense. Yeah. It is it, the word, the word, the actual correct word for what that is, is completely cavalier. It is just ridiculous. I mean, there's no way in hell, even if you put a million quid in a briefcase in front of me and said, right, this, your next decision, do it on your 50p like you used to do. I'd be like, keep your million quid. Because it is, is, is probably one of the most irresponsible things that I used to do. But then I also used to throw myself off cliffs for fun. I mean, my whole life was irresponsible. Did that ever get you into trouble? The 50 pence piece decision-making yeah. like in a business sense, did oh. that any decisions that went really bad? Uh, yeah, I decided in, so 2007, 2008, we were heading in towards a very, very big financial crash. Now, by this stage, I was, uh, I was running my transport company. And some of the um, some of my clients were family friends because they used to race cars with my dad as well, and and quite a few of them were in banking because obviously it's an expensive hobby and you need to have a decent salary. I got given the heads up that it was it was coming. So and they were saying get yourself in order financially. If you've got overdrafts, try and get out of them. If you've got finance, try and pay it off or at least mitigate it so that you you've got that that. They also said to me, look, you've actually got a recession-proof business because we're all going to still keep going racing and we still need you to move our cars, man. And it, and my business then served me extremely well. However, I still got my place the, uh, down in the West Country, my, my buy-to-let. And I was sat there going, there's loads of people that we know that are running around refinancing their properties on longer-term products, right? And, and we've seen this very, it's quite relevant now because this is recently happening again. And, um, and I was like, well, I've got two choices here. Do I refinance or do I just leave it on the product and ride it out? You know, and that, that's the kind of cool thing. That's what I want to do. But no, let's try and be sensible. Do I refinance? But if I refinance, I'm going to make less money each month because I'll pay more in, in my, in my uh, mortgage payments. So I was like, how am I going to do this? Well, you've already basically alluded to the answer. Outcomes are 50 beat. I'll do it. Heads, I remortgage. Tails, I ride it out like the big boys. And it land on tails. And I'm like, cool, cheers, fate. That's it. Right. Brilliant. Get on with doing my life. Six months later, I was paying the rent that was due to come in. I was topping up the same amount just to cover the mortgage. That put me in an £8,000 overdraft over about following 14 months of which it took me 10 years to get out of because again remember i was cavalier so i was terrible at saving money money management all that stuff back then um and over that 10 years i actually sat down four years ago and i worked out that i paid twenty-one thousand pounds in overdraft interest so that flick of the coin gives me twenty-nine thousand quid so wow i'd say that's a pretty cavalier wow decision and just thinking about some of these 
challenges and and the scaling thing i was just wondering whether some of that is a is a mindset thing as well because sometimes it's not necessarily knowing how to scale it might be that something subconsciously is actually blocking you from wanting to grow that business yeah and i think it was i think i've also um for a lot of my life i've i felt that i'm not good enough and i've i've had that in probably my subconscious even when i've thought no i am good enough i can do this you know i i, I got to being at one of the highest levels that you can get to at skiing the only thing i could have done was go and compete and maybe become a world-ranked skier. Now, I don't know whether I had that ability or not because it wasn't on my radar. I didn't want to do it. But if I got the ability to be at the top of my game with that, there's no reason why I can't be at the top of my game with something else because I know that it's in me. But subconsciously, from a business point of view, there was so much stuff holding me back because it because the business side of things was is more geared towards the academic side of things. Because you have to do accounts, you have to do, you know, business plans. You have to do this, that, and the other strategy. You have to physically run all the all the thousand moving parts of a business, like you know. So it's a constant juggling act when you're on your own. So I was like, well, I struggle to do this on my own. How the hell am I going to run something with a thousand staff and across the world and you know a virgin? You know, I take my hat off to to Richard, to Richard Branson, but how the hell? I, I I'm not good enough for that. Because it had been pre-programmed into my subconscious back then, so it was a, lim- it was a limiting belief. Yeah, hugely, hugely limiting belief. Now, but the trouble is, when you're when you're very like me, I'm very free spirited. I'm pretty open minded to to learning new things and and doing that. When you know consciously you're like that, you don't sit there and think I've probably got limiting beliefs. Mm-hmm. Because why would you, right? But it's only when you start to dig deeper and you start going into to doing more self-development and actually starting to own it and realize that my dyslexia is actually a gift, not a curse. When I flipped that coin, I landed on the right side and gone, yeah, okay, now I know what to do. So how did that mindset and limiting belief hold you back? I mean, what do you think that you lost from having that way of thinking definitely the ability to scale the businesses i mean i i you know i i think my destiny is always to be heavily involved in property anyway and i've been involved in property all my life one way or the other you know my parents did up properties so that was kind of predisposed that that was going to be in my life the difference is i think if i if i hadn't had those limiting beliefs i probably would have and i probably would have looked at learning how to scale the transport business up and it not being 100% reliant on me, in which case when I'd scaled it up, then it would have generated more revenue. And then, and the whole idea I set that business up for was to make a load of revenue to then take that out of the company and start buying more properties to set up a retirement for myself. That was basically where I was at back then. That was the plan. I also, guess what? Because I was still Cavalier, started buying more cars and then I got into motorbikes as well. And and it just, you know, the money just got fristed away as I was living a Peter Pan lifestyle. So, it, but it, it's, it's also then, I, I then met my, my now partner that I've been with for 10 years and I met, uh, and I inherited two stepsons at 13 and 17. 
and I started to, they're incredible guys, very, very bright, doing really, really well. And I just sat there and thought, well, look, if there's this French, the, the, my, my partner's friend, she came to the, to, to the UK when she was 17, 18, not speaking much English. And I'm like, if she's still here 20 plus years later, over a 10 year period, she's raised two boys up on her own and she can do all that. That's a, that's that impressed me, and I'm thinking I can do a lot more than I'm doing, and I can do a lot more sensible stuff if I if I stop messing about and start to really focus. And that's where it was. It was focusing on. I was bald before I met her, and she actually, you know, I'd been I'd spent my whole life looking for her. Basically, I was going to say, do you think it was a some of this is to do sort of maybe a lack of purpose yeah usually i didn't have a purpose at all i just wanted to do cool stuff and have fun that's not a purpose it's not a strong enough purpose either but i wanted to be a role model for the boys and i wanted to create that stability and that family environment for them that my brother and i had had and my other half when she when she was growing up she had that with her family as well and i thought it's not fair um, I, I don't like injustice and I think everyone should be given a fair chance now if they take that chance and they throw it away or they go and learn something and don't bother to do anything with it that's on them but I think everyone deserves that chance so I wanted to you know I, when I met them I was still smoking and the boys have never seen me smoke because I didn't want them to and I gave up within two and a half months of us being together I quit after having smoked most of my life since I was at school. Wow. So a kind of big pivotal moment for you. Yeah, huge. In terms of all of your business setbacks and, and challenges and, you know, the failures that we've been talking about, what do you think has been your biggest lesson? So many. It's ridiculous. It's like, like acres of them. Um, I'll I tell you what. I'll tell you what my biggest lesson has been, actually, to trust my gut. Not a 50 pence piece. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. Great shout. You have me on that one. Um, yeah, more so because for 10 years I, I was trying to do sensible things and I was trying to make the sensible choices and, and, it, and I was still failing. And where that fail would then trigger my dyslexia, it would then trigger a frustration. And where that frustration got triggered, it would trigger the flip it attitude. I'll keep it clean and put in a little property reference there, but you can insert another F word there for the linkless. I was just like, you know what? I don't care about this. If this is going to be my life, then I might as well just go back to having fun because I'm trying to do everything the right way and I'm failing. And, be, and, and what I didn't realize was I was failing towards achieving, but because I didn't have that maturity back then and that understanding and I was still angry at, at stuff going on I just went back to going like that but I I I made you mean, not... you, mean you you gave up when things got tough is that what you mean yeah I was getting up things didn't work yeah because it, because I if enough doesn't work often enough you just start to think well you know and, and bear in mind if you're coming into that situation already pre-framed as I was that I'm not good enough already. Well, that's just compounding what I'm thinking. So 
and it, and it actually it even got to the stage as well before I met my partner Cassie that I, I was going out trying to date people, and it, that was even going pear shaped. And I and literally the day before I met her that night at home on my own, and I sat there and went, "That's it. I can't be bothered with this dating. It's a load of nonsense. It's head all, headache, headache, ha um, hassle, and I give up." And I just went, I'm going to leave it. I'm just going to leave it to whatever fate throws my way. Literally less than 24 hours. Mm -hmm. it, it threw me the love of my life. Mm -hmm. When I've given up and I'm like, how does that work? I've just given up on everything. And I, and I don't have a give up attitude. I have a, you're not going to beat me attitude generally. But it, but what I then later on and more recently found out was that I wasn't giving up. I was letting go. And then mm -hmm. it's two very different things. But it seems the same when you don't understand it. Any other lessons apart from the trust you got? Um, keep going. If it's something that you're really passionate about, whether it's your business or, or you know, whatever it is you're doing and you want to achieve in your life, just keep going. I actually saw a really amazing post today. There's a picture of a guy that was a football supporter. And I, I'm not a big football fan, but it's a picture of a football supporter. And it said 2002. And then it had the same guy sat there in 2022 on the same place. And he's wearing just the same top. And he's obviously 20 years old. And he's now the president of this football club. And he's gone from fam to president of the football club. And it's like 20 years that took him. You, you know, when you speak to people that have been in business for 20 plus years, they will tell you they've gone through a lot of grief. And there's a phrase, I know that you're familiar with it as well, that it takes years to become an overnight success. And it's so true. But if you know that, you know that you're going to get there. 100%. Um, so, yeah, that, that would be another bit of advice. And I, sorry, I was just going to say, the other thing I'd say is, is building out your network is probably the single most important thing that I've done with all of my businesses. Because one, it's how you get the work. Two, it's how you become known for what you're doing. And three, when everything's going really pear-shaped, it's your network and your closest of your network, like you're in a circle, that will be there to help you come hell or high water. And that having that support, mm. you you actually can't buy that kind of support. Definitely. I don't think. No, I mean, it's that, you know, you, you need those those people around you to lean on definitely yeah what advice would you give to new entrepreneurs about how to handle the fear of failure um to actually lean into it um you you're going to fail whatever you do there will be failures along the way um i i had this conversation with someone quite a few years ago and i said oh i i um the the word the word fail isn't in my vocabulary. And he said, well, yeah, but you need to have failures to move forward. And I said, yeah, failures, absolutely. I don't mind having failures. But fail to me is a categoric, that's it. It's like a stop sign. You stop. A give way sign, that's a failure. But a stop sign is fail. That's it. You, you, you've, you've now got to that stage and you've given up on that. You're now on to the next thing. A failure is when you've, you've gone down one route, it's not the right one. So you reverse back a bit, regroup and go, right, let's go down that route. Now, another fail, okay. That, I had someone else say something to me which was really interesting is that 
when you're going down a route in a ship, if you change it, change the course by one degree, you won't see that move until you're a bit further down. Mm. But when the further you go away from that point that you change the one degree, the further away you're getting to where you were going to be before. And it's when you start to visualize it, you, you can see yourself going, actually, this fail that I was heading towards, I'm miles away from that now. I've actually jumped over three or four fails that I would have hit because I'm actually on the right path now. And that's a great analogy. So if you could go back in time and if we're looking at that particular kind of transport business and, you know, that not sort of scaling or and you're having to close it down, would you erase that from happening? 100% not. Because all the fails I've had, they're all learnings. There's another phrase, you learn or you earn. And I've been learning a hell of a lot over 30 years, which is why I now run multiple businesses that got set up just before COVID. And some of them have been set up since then and they've expanded and they're growing. So I'm still in that growth stage of the businesses, but I can afford to run all of them. I can also afford to leave all of them. Um, all of them bar one I have business partners with so that they're sharing the load. Um, we can scale and leave any of them. None of them are dependent on me or any of my other business partners. So all of those learnings that I, I've brought to the table now that I sit at, if I'd erased all of that, I wouldn't be who I am today. And I wouldn't have that, those, I wouldn't have been honing those skill sets for this long. And hey, look, Jez, I'm 47 years old. I'm not even halfway through yet. Exactly, it's still a long way to go. Yeah. Okay, amazing. So just wrapping up then. So we have a quick fire round. We normally end with that. So this is short answers and um, short questions. So failure is? Uh, something to be sucked up and used as a lesson to help you uh, not make the same mistake twice. What is your life's mission? So you help as many people as I can succeed in whatever they're doing. What's one piece of advice that you'd want to give to others on your deathbed? You're only here once, as far as I know. Name one habit that keeps you resilient. Discipline. If you could be immortal, would you take it? Yeah, it'd be a bit of fun, wouldn't it? Why not? goes all with your cavalier uh, attitude right you can have yeah. some, lots more you, you could do as much skiing as you wanted exactly what's one surprising fact not many people know about you uh i learned how to drive a car at seven years old okay that makes a lot of sense after this conversation yeah and who could you recommend as a guest i should have on oh uh andy rivers Okay, why Andy? Uh, he's a very, very interesting guy. He's had a really interesting um, life. Uh, he's worked, worked um, in a few different jobs and he's now a professional life coach. But he's, he's quite an interesting personality. I think you'd have, a good, you'd have a, a good podcast with him. Brilliant. Thank you for that. So, Andrew, where can people find you and connect with you? I'm literally all over social media. I'm very, very easy to find. Um, I spend most of my time on Facebook, um, but I do have Instagram and LinkedIn. 
Um, so those, those are the, the easiest places to find me. Um, just literally type in my name um, and just ask to just send a friend's request and, and go from there, really. I'm happy to talk to anyone about anything, really, and, and always try, always happy to, to help people, give them a bit of advice if they need it, um, whether they're starting out or even whether they're experienced. I, I work with other really experienced people because I've got such a diverse um, kind of skill set. I can help a lot of people in a lot of different ways. So, yeah, just reach out if you've enjoyed this. Um, that'd be great. Amazing. Well, um, thank you for that. And thank you uh, for your time and, and being on. It's been a enjoyable conversation. So um, thank you and have a good evening. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me along, Jez. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Fail. Really hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something new. Please do subscribe to the show and leave us a review. It really does help us to grow and to reach more people. Do follow us on social media too. We're at Jeswood on Instagram and at Beyond the Fail on YouTube and also on Linktree. Thanks again and see you soon.